The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. How is everybody? We're good? Good. It's a beautiful day today. It's so good to be together. If you're new, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at Story City. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. We're going to be in the book of Ephesians this morning in chapter 4 of Ephesians. Uh, July, June 29th, 2007. June 29th, 2007. Quietly, one of the most transformative days in recent history. Do you know what happened that day? The Generation 1 iPhone was released on June 29th. 2007. It was a day we all unknowingly, and our society unknowingly, took a, its first steps down a path that would transform the way it interacted. Uh, I was 23 when it happened, a year out of college. Do you remember where you were when you unwrapped your first iPhone and set it up? It's a moment I'll never forget. Just 13 years ago, if you wanted the news, you read a newspaper. Just 13 years ago, if you went to a concert, you actually watched the concert. You didn't stare at your phone and watch the concert on your phone. Just 13 years ago, if there was no book in the bathroom, you read the back of the toothpaste. Just 13 years ago, so much has changed. Additionally, the iPhone uh, undid a lot of technological advancement in other areas. One online publication said it this way, over its lifespan... The iPhone has altered many industries for better and for worse. The iPhone chipped away at the paper map industry, point-and-shoot cameras, voice recorders, watches, handheld game consoles, MP3 players, and Apple's own iPod line. Additionally, through the advent of social media, the iPhone created a new alternate digital reality that we all now inhabit It's never more than a swipe of the thumb away. It's in the back of your pocket right now or perhaps in your hand. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, so on and so forth. The new social media never stops coming. Smartphones are a central part of your life and my life. So central that it's hard to believe that just 13 years ago, we lived life entirely without them. How did we get where we needed to go in the car? Many of us check our social media feeds before our feet hit the floor in the morning. Many of us fall asleep in the blue light, scrolling through our social media feeds. Social media has become so ingrained into our daily lives that we have new vernacular for it. It's given us new vocabulary. Follow me now means something different. Friend me. We have a new word called hashtags or don't at me. As in Michael Jordan is the goat, don't at me. And I stand by that. And perhaps this one, slide into my DMs as a new vernacular for courtship in the 21st century. Social media has also commandeered words that previously meant other things, that meant something else altogether. For instance, the word content, content has taken on a new meaning. Let me, for you boomers and above here who are completely lost right now, let me, let me try to help a little bit. If you're trying to be a social media influencer, that is to have a lot of people follow you online, you need to be constantly putting out content. What is online content? What does that mean? Uh, I recently heard a thoughtful artist 
lament content, this idea of digital output as disenchanted art. Disenchanted art. It's utilitarian art, divorced from beauty, from meditation, from contemplation, from incubation, from transcendence or any sacramental quality. Aside from that content, what is it? It's just simply words, videos, pictures, any form of digital output for your online audience to engage with you through, for your followers to know who you are. The quality of the content you put out does matter, but it matters secondarily to the fact that you're putting it out to begin with so that you can stay in the public eye, out of sight, out of mind, right? And content helps us stay in sight and in mind. One online publication offering advice for how social media influencers should post content and how often said this, on Facebook, you should post at minimum three times per week and a max of once per day. Twitter, a minimum of three per day and a max of 30 times a day to start. Consider having a tweet or retweet at least once per hour. Instagram, at least once per day and a maximum of three times per day. LinkedIn, Everybody loves getting a good old-fashioned LinkedIn email. At least twice a week and no more than one once each business day. Here's what's really worth discussing about online content, though. Here's what the point we're really, I really want to make is. Online content gives us this luxury, this ability to bend the way we're perceived in the online public eye to our liking. It, it, it allows us to become the curators of our own personalities and personas, like used car salesmen and women selling the product of our very selves. What do I mean, how? Well, it allows me and you to hide that broken right rear window in our character and highlight the heated seats and onboard GPS we'd prefer to be known or seen for. It allows us to tuck away our imperfections and project forward and highlight our pristine personas. It allows us to hide the flaws in our figure and present ourselves as faultless figurines. The content we place online may be able to shape the way we're perceived in this new digital ether, but in the real world we inhabit right now, it is the offline content of my heart and your hearts that we will be known for. It will be revealed in real families, real friendships, real communities, real churches like this one. And according to the scripture, the unavoidable way, the offline content of my heart and your hearts will be seen is through the content of this little piece of flesh in our mouths called our tongues. According to the scriptures, our mouths manifest our hearts. How we use our voice defines who we are. Luke 6.45, Jesus himself said it. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Think about that. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. It's as if you carry an ocean of emotion and thought in your chest, and when you speak, it pours out of your mouth. There is no way we can curate the content of our hearts in the real world. Like it or not, the good, the bad, and the ugly of who we are will always be showcased in how we use our tongues. According to the scripture, you can't control it, and neither can I. 
James 5, 7, and 8. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. We can tame a killer whale. We can tame tigers. Joe Exotic. We can tame anything, any animal. But no human being can tame the tongue. No one. It is a, listen to this, a restless evil full of deadly poison. This morning, we're going to look at one verse, Ephesians 4.29, and it gives us simple, practical instructions on how to use our tongues with kindness, on how to use our tongues rightly, as God would have us use them. But the fact that its instructions are simple, and they are, they're easy to comprehend, it does not make them easy to live out. In fact, according to James, in James 5, the only hope I have or you have of living up to the simple instructions of Ephesians 4.29 today is that God, supernaturally, by his spirit, through faith and repentance in Jesus Christ, would give us new hearts that overflow in new voices, new content. Ezekiel 3, or I'm sorry, Ezekiel 36.26 says this, I will give you a new heart. This is, Uh, the nation of Israel is in captivity in Babylon and the Lord prophesies to them through Ezekiel promising restoration. And he says, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Hear me, if you have a heart of stone, you're gonna manifest stony speech. If you have a heart of flesh, your speech will be life-giving and only God can make that possible. We can't get where God wants to take us this morning by trying harder. Did you hear me? We can't become the kind of people God is trying to make us this morning through his word by trying harder. We need new hearts. We need new hearts. Ephesians 4.29, without any more delay, let's read our text. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, Only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. Building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. It's just one verse. I like that this morning because you have no excuse to say it was hard to understand. This is simple this morning. It's one verse for us to wrap our hearts and heads around and walk out of here seeking to embody But before we actually unfold this verse, I want to build a framework for it, a little quick context about the book of Ephesians where the Apostle Paul wrote this verse. The Apostle Paul planted the church in Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey and the start of his third, the first two years of his third. He wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus from prison in Rome. It's called one of the four prison epistles. He wrote it sometime in AD 60 or 61. Ephesians is Paul's most formal letter in its language. Epistles like 2 Corinthians or Galatians, which he also authored, have all sorts of relational touches and flourishes and insertions in them. But in Ephesians, Paul is writing with two clear goals. And they're going to be manifested in two clear sections, chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6. And those two goals will keep him on track. They're going to keep his language formal and direct. I want to look for just a few minutes here 
at these two sections and Paul's intentions in them because I think as we look at how Paul formed the letter of Ephesians, we're actually gonna get a peek at how God gives us new hearts that manifest in new speech. In section one, chapters one through three, Paul is unfolding how God, listen to this, how God creates a distinct community of people, the church, with new hearts. And he does it, Paul's gonna show us, by grace through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in chapters one through three, Paul lays out the theology of salvation. Theologians call it soteriology. He says, salvation is a free gift to be received by faith in Christ alone. And once you've received this faith, Another transaction happens. God regenerates your heart. He makes you a new creation. He literally, through his spirit, transforms your inner person and gives you new roots, a new life source that you live out of. The one big idea Paul is hammering home in the first three chapters of Ephesians is most concisely stated and summarized in the first 10 verses of chapter two. And I wanna just read them for us this morning. And it's a slightly longer passage of scripture than we might normally read. So I wanna challenge you, engage your mind as we read this. Don't zone out, focus in, lean in, because this is rich and good for us this morning to hear. Ephesians 2, one through 10. Supply our hearts to this together. As for you, You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Wow. You know, this text has been called by some commentators and theologians, the turtle on a fence post passage of the Bible. The turtle on a fence post passage of the Bible. What does that mean? Well, if you're walking in an open field and you see a fence and it's got round posts, and as you come up to one of the posts, there's a turtle with its legs dangling off the side, sitting on its shell on the fence post, you're left to deduce a few things. That turtle didn't get there on its own, right? Turtles don't climb fence posts. Someone put that turtle there. Christians raised from death to life are like turtles on a fence post. We signify that we didn't get spiritually where we are on our own. Someone put us where we are, namely God through Jesus. 
Paul begins in this passage, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. That was the state of my heart, heart with no life, heart, with, heart that overflowed in no life-giving, building up sort of speech. You and I were dead in our transgressions and sins. That's where we all start. Question this morning, how much do dead people do? Not a whole lot. They just lay there and decompose. And that's where we were spiritually. We were dead. But then we read that in great love, in great love, God enters into the equation. He takes action and initiative. He made us alive. God takes dead people and makes them alive spiritually. And he raised us up with Christ and seated us with Jesus on that fence post in heavenly realms. Wow. Wow. Thank you, Jesus. Dead people raised to life, seated in glory with Jesus. What a change. What a transition. How does that work? How does God do it? Well, Paul gives us the answer. For it is by grace we have been saved through faith. We've been saved by grace through faith. Faith in who? In Jesus. In his life, death, and sacrifice on the cross in our place where God imputed or poured out upon him our sin and through faith imputes or pours out upon us the righteousness of Christ so that when God sees us, he sees Jesus. And God says that that happens through faith and that that faith is not something that we worked up. It's not a work. It's something God has to give us. So even the faith we have that activates the grace of God in our lives and gives us the righteousness of Jesus is a gift that God give. And Paul says, so where is boasting? Who spiritually this morning that's just a turtle sitting on a fence post has any reason to stand before any other Christian and think themselves better, more worthy? We are equally sinners who've received grace at the cross. What have we had to do with our salvation? The same amount that a turtle has to do with sitting on a fence post, zero. God is the one who saves. God is the one who gives us faith. God is the one who gives us hearts that are regenerated to love him. God is the one through Christ who right now, if you're covered in the righteousness of Christ, there is no condemnation in your life. God is the one who has seated you spiritually in the heavenly realms with Jesus Christ, a place you could never get on your own. It's all God's doing. What a gift. Do you believe you've received that gift this morning? Have you come to faith in Jesus? This is good news. Why? Why has God done this? What was God's impetus? What was his purpose? Well, Paul gives two reasons here in our text. First, he says, God did all this in order that in the ages to come, he might showcase the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus. God in his plan and providence knew that the greatest way to glorify his kindness and his grace and be known for who he is was to take people far from him like me and you, people who were dead in their sins and raise them up to life and set them on that fence post they never could have gotten to on their own so that the world looks at us with transformed, regenerated hearts and lives that speak out words that build up. They look in and they say, something's different there. And they don't see our good works and glorify us. They say, God's real. Look what God does in hearts and lives that trust in him. He glorifies himself. That was one of the reasons God has done what he's done. 
He wants people to see what he can do, what his kindness and grace can do and know him as a good God. Secondly, the second reason why Paul says that God gives us this kind of salvation is he says, we are God's handiwork. Do you believe that about yourself this morning? That God crafted you, made you, loves you as you are. You are his art. You are his handiwork. And he says, we're created in Christ Jesus. Why? To do good works. To do good works. See, the fact that we're saved by grace doesn't mean that we don't do good works. On the contrary, we're pulled, compelled by love for Jesus into good works. And here's the beautiful thing about it. God has already prepared them for you and for me. There are moments in your life looking, you look ahead to right now and know that God has prepared a good work for you to do to glorify himself. God doesn't save us for the sidelines. He doesn't save us so that we can sit on our sofas. He saves us so that we will enter into the good works he's already prepared for us to do and bring him glory and join him in his mission. We're saved for the field. We're saved for action. We're saved for mission. We aren't saved for the sidelines. So a lot there, but I want to build that foundation because this section one summary is simply this. All of Ephesians one through three is a simple explanation of cause and effect in the Christian life. Cause, the radical grace of God given through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's the cause. We get new hearts through the radical grace of God given through faith in Jesus Christ. The effect, these new hearts overflow in new speech and new life. That glorifies God. It's a cause and effect. And then in the second section where our verse is this morning, with this foundation built in chapters four through six, Paul goes on to say, if you've received a new heart, if you've been regenerated, if you've been saved, if you're a turtle on a fence post, now... This is how people with new hearts interact with one another. So this is who you are. Now this is how you live because of who I've made you. And what he says is this is how you mirror to one another my grace, my kindness, my forgiveness, my mercy, my love. All you've received in Christ now should flow out of you. The content of your hearts is no longer bitterness. It's no longer comparison. It's no longer malice. It's no longer rage. It's no longer gossip. It's no longer greed. It's kindness. It's compassion. It's kindness. It's compassion. It's forgiveness. It's love. And in verse 29, Paul zooms in on our tongues. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, Christian but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that may benefit those who listen. Unwholesome, interesting word, right? Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. The word translated unwholesome in the NIV here is translated corrupting in the ESV. Don't let any corrupting talk come out of your mouth. The word in the Greek literally means rotten. Don't let any rotten talk come out of your mouth. Don't let any decaying talk come out of your mouth. Unwholesome talk is corrupting talk. It's talk that infects. It's talk that degrades a community. It's like a rotten animal behind the walls of your house. You can't see it, but you can smell it. It stinks. 
it infects, it degrades a community. We're not to talk like that. In contrast, how are we supposed to talk? Paul says we talk in ways, we talk what is helpful for building others up. The words that come out of new hearts build others up. New hearts overflow with words that build up. Is your mouth overflowing that way? See, our words are not of small consequence. They matter. They matter greatly. They can build up and they can tear down. Proverbs 18.21 says this. Listen to this. The tongue has the power of life and death. Life and death. It doesn't get much more powerful than that. How? How does the tongue have so much power? Well, let me try to explain it this way. Words shape the way we perceive the world. They shape the way we perceive one another. They form our perception of reality. Primarily, words form our perception of other people. So if I come to you and tell you something about another person, hey, so-and-so is like this or did this or talks this way or lives this way, my words enter into your heart, into your mind, into your schema of that person, and they impact and in part at least form the way you think of that person. They shape the reality you view that person with. Famous statement that we've all heard since we were kids, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. False, wrong, false. That statement should say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words have a power to go deeper into my heart than sticks and stones could ever go and do far greater damage. Words form our approach to life. This is why gossip in the church and in general is so destructive and tears down so much. What is gossip? When we gossip, we spread subtle lies. We spread half-truths that misrepresent someone and bring up confusion in a community, or we spread at worst intentional misinformation that would mislead other people about another person in order to benefit our standing in their sight. In doing so, we are shaping the way that person is viewed in a community, in their minds. That's why Proverbs 18.8 says, the words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down into the inmost parts. Gossiping feels good. It's like a choice morsel. It's like a bacon-wrapped scallop. Mm, give me some more gossip. Did you hear so-and-so did this? Mm, it's warm. That's why St. Augustine had a sign on his wall near his dinner table that read, he who speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. That's a dinner sign right there. Augustine understood this, that we can gossip actively through speaking evil or ill or misrepresenting someone else in a community to build ourselves up, but we can also gossip passively through lending our ears to the conversation. But why, do, why and how do new hearts forsake gossip? How do they forsake this conversation that would tear down? Well, a new heart knows and understands in light of the gospel that it's an equally forgiven sinner saved by grace and is in no way superior 
to the absent individual being discussed in an unedifying way. It feels its own sin far more acutely than anyone else's. A new heart knows who it is in Jesus. It has an identity that is secure in the work of Christ and feels no need to make another person smaller so that it can be bigger. It knows who it is. A new heart focuses its energy on highlighting what is best in others, on spreading blessing in a community. It doesn't always look for the worst in people. A new heart focuses, its own, focuses on its own need for growth in grace. And it has eyes and lips that intentionally go out of their way to highlight the growth and grace it sees in the imperfect people it shares community with. You may be failing in nine areas, but a person growing in grace will look at your life, a mess in nine areas, and really just nailing it in one, and they're going to highlight the one area that you're doing great, and they're going to tell you about it, and they're going to spread it through the community. Have you seen what's happening in so-and-so's heart? Isn't that awesome? Hey, I want to show you, I want to tell you, I see God working in your life in this way, and it's beautiful. May we be a community with that kind of conversation going on in it, that kind of kindness being spoken. But it's interesting. Paul doesn't just say we build others up with our tongues. He says we do it according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. See, new hearts overflow with words that benefit others. Listen to this. According to their present needs. We need to be spoken to at diff- in different ways at different times, right? Like I need different things, different input, different wisdom in different seasons of life. And we need to seek God for wisdom as to what someone needs, someone's needs are and how to engage those needs in ways that actually benefits them where they are. Hear this. It is so possible to speak the right truth into someone's heart at the wrong time or in the wrong way, and do damage. You can say what's right in the wrong way or at the wrong time and actually inflict harm on someone. Why? Because you're not building them up according to their needs. That's why Proverbs 25, 20 says this, like one who takes away a garment on a cold day, or like vinegar poured on a wound is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. You don't come into a suffering person's living room and start singing songs of gladness. It's just one example of what that looks like, but our attempts to help can hurt if they're not done in the right way. What does this look like? Let me give a few examples and we'll, we'll close this morning. Well, we, if there's a discouraged or downcast or anxious or depressed person in your life, what does that look like? What does it look like? to build them up according to their needs. Discouraged and downcast people need encouragement. They need kindness. They need compassion. They need patience. Are we the kind of people who enter into the lives of the struggling, the anxious, the depressed, impatiently exhorting them to cheer up, impatiently exhorting those who need patience and grace that they can just get it together? Or do we give them room for God to work in their lives. That's why Proverbs 12, 25 says, anxiety in the heart weighs it down, but a kind word cheers it up. Conversely, if there's a wayward person in your life, a a believer who's living comfortably with sin that is hurting them and doing damage in their lives and in their community, 
How do we build them up according to their needs? We do it through loving exhortation. We do it by speaking the truth in love, by urging them towards repentance, helping them see their blind spots in love. Proverbs 27, 6, the wounds of a friend can be trusted. Is there someone in your life right now that needs truth and love and it's time for you to speak it? You need to discern that with the Lord. We build up the suffering through patient, often speechless presence. I think of Job's three friends. You know the book of Job. It's no one ever suffered like Job did. He lost his family. He lost his health. He lost his home. He lost his wealth. All in one fell swoop. And his friends come, and before they start getting everything wrong, they get a few things right. They sit with him for seven days in silence. That's a long time. It's hard for us to sit for seven seconds in silence with people sometimes. They sit with Job in his suffering, faithful presence with the hurting in silence for seven days, and that is comfort to Job. Maybe God is calling you to simply be a faithful, silent presence of love in a suffering friend's life. What about the sick? How do we build the sick up? We build the sick up according to their needs through prayer. The Bible all over instructs us to pray for the sick. First Samuel 12, 23, listen to this verse. Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. It's possible to sin against someone by failing to pray for them. I think this week of a dear family in our church, loved and known by many, the Garrities, who had a baby boy, Lewis. And Lewis right now is in the hospital with heart issues, digestive issues. Hannah had Lewis, got to touch him on the leg as he was ushered out of the room separated because of COVID in different hospitals. Brad caring for his kids. Hannah alone in the hospital apart from her baby and husband. They're under so much right now. Baby Lewis needs our prayers. Brad and Hannah need our prayers. Far be it from us as a church to sin against Hannah and Brad by not praying for them. There's a family in our church that needs our prayers and we need to love them in that way. And perhaps there's someone in your life, that's someone in my life, that just needs your faithful prayers, words spoken to God on their behalf, powerfully, faithfully, passionately, that lift them up. Are you praying for the people in your life? Lastly, perhaps there's people in your life that don't know Jesus. Your family, you're headed into Thanksgiving and you've got family members that are lost, that don't know Jesus, that don't understand the good news, that don't have new hearts. You build them up according to their needs by faithfully speaking the gospel. May we be a church that speaks the gospel into the lives of the people around us that don't know Jesus, believing that it's the only hope of new life, believing that it's the only way that can seal eternity in life. Believing that much is at stake. When is the last time that you, when is the last time that I simply shared the gospel with someone in our life that needs to hear it? Romans 10, 14, how can they believe in the one whom they've not heard and how can they hear without someone preaching to them? 
So as you and I head into Thanksgiving, as we gather with family and friends that perhaps we haven't seen for a while, perhaps we have, let's consider what are the specific relational needs present in your community? What are they? Don't enter into the holiday without preparing yourself for that. Prayerfully before the Lord, consider and discern how you can use your words in kindness to build the people in your life up according to what they need. And hear me. If you don't have clarity on that, consider holding your tongue. Sometimes it's going to look like truth and love. Sometimes it's going to look like patience for the hurting and the suffering. Sometimes it's going to look like silence. But hear me, it's always going to look like kindness. Why? Because we've received the kindness of Jesus. It is what gave us new hearts and salvation. So from hearts touched by kindness, kindness flows out into the lives of those around us. So with the great love of God in view, with hearts responding to his incomparable grace and kindness to us in Jesus Christ, let's be a community that builds one another up according to our needs. May that be the content of our hearts. Okay. We're going to take communion this morning. You should have received a cup, a little styrofoam wafer, and some juice on your way in. What is communion? Communion is a moment where we look back. What do we look back to? We look back to the body and blood of Jesus Christ broken for us on the cross. We embrace anew his body broken for us for forgiveness of sins. Together, as a community, we look back to Jesus. Secondly, communion is a moment where we look inward. It's a moment where we confess before the Lord any sin that's indwelling, where we lean into the grace of Jesus again for forgiveness. Thirdly, we look back, we look in, but communion is a moment where we look forward. We look forward to the return of Christ, to our future glory with him. And I want to say this, if you're visiting this morning or searching or seeking, we're so glad you're here. You are welcome. You are a celebrated guest. But this specific moment is something that probably doesn't make a ton of sense for you to take part in. Because this is a moment that Christ says is for his church, his people, to remember and commune with him through the sacrament of communion. So what I want to ask you to do is take this time, use this time to bow your head, sing with the band, and ask God to reveal himself to you. I'm going to pray, and as the band plays, I'm going to allow you time and space to quietly, where you are, take the cup, take the bread, and give God thanks for his life, death, and resurrection. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your kindness to us in Christ Jesus. May it make us people who have hearts of kindness that overflow in words of kindness, that are wise to the needs around us and how to meet them and speak to them with tact and wisdom and discernment and discipline and love. May life flow out of this community with transformed hearts. We give you thanks for Jesus. Glorify your son in this moment as we take communion. It's in Jesus' name, amen.